Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall. Hello and welcome everyone to today's podcast. My name is J.W. Marshall with MarketScale and we have a great guest lined up for us today, Tade Oyurinde. And he is going to be talking with us on a number of topics, including the bundling and unbundling of higher education. Tade, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And just before we get started with some questions, uh, it would be great if you could give our audience a little bit of background on yourself and your company. Sure. Um, so, so I'm the founder and CEO of CampusWire. Uh, we started the company in, in 2016, and essentially the main thing we we wanted to solve with the company was that there didn't exist great software for teaching online. Um, it was fairly clear that sort of higher education was going to move progressively online. And we thought, well, higher ed deserved its own purpose built tools. So you had two classes of existing incumbents, sort of you had, you know, the blackboards, the Moodles, the canvases, um, and it was fairly clear that they were not talented enough or sort of product focused enough to build great software for teaching online. And then you had sort of the, the really talented Silicon Valley, big company type tools like Slack or, or Zoom and, and some of these other tools, but they were never going to really tailor um, their products for the needs of, of higher educators. Um, and so we thought, okay, well, well, you should have a Silicon Valley type company that understands how to build beautiful, easy to use software that, um, that also um, was focused specifically on the needs of professors and students. And so... Yeah, that's why we started the company. And today, uh, you know, we've grown it. We're, we're used in hundreds of schools uh, all over the world, um, hundreds of thousands of active users. Um, professors typically just choose to adopt us um, individually. We don't try and sell usually top down uh, through an administration. We typically professors find us and, and adopt it like a SaaS tool, the same way um, Slack grew in the early days or Dropbox. And, and so it's worked really well. Um, millions of, of sort of... Uh, millions of, of, of bits of content in terms of like messages or posts, you know, flow through the system every single day. And um, yeah, it's growing really quickly. Obviously, COVID's been an interesting and accelerant, but I'm sure we'll get into all that later. You beat me to my punch. Uh, the first question uh, is going to be, you know, I'm sure you guys were on a high growth trajectory before COVID. Uh, but really, what have you seen as the major infrastructure changes that has started to happen in the spring semester and are taking place now over the summer and, uh, you know, starting with some universities uh, as, as quickly as uh, this week, last week, um, what have been the major changes that you've seen uh, in the in the landscape of this market? Yeah, so it's it's been both super positive and a little bit negative. So in March, when everyone overnight was switching um, so to, to online, uh, it was extremely positive for our business. We had 600% growth in the middle of March compared to January. And, and that's just never, that's like super abnormal. Our space is typically super cyclical. Um, professors generally avoid, you know, making changes, adopting new software um, in the middle of the term. And so you really have two windows to grow dramatically. Three, if you're talking about quarterly schools, um, sort of the two being sort of August and then, and then January. But we saw tremendous growth in March as everyone moved online. And that's been great in that those users haven't churned. They've persisted with us. And I think, you know, this is going to be obviously a record fall for us. But um, it also has become a bit more difficult in terms of, I think, a lot of these other tools, Zoom in particular, Slack to a much lesser degree, Microsoft Teams in a meaningful way, 
um, have become more well known in our space. Previously, when when people would look at you know using our video lecture tool, for example, I mean they'd look at us like we invented fire. Like I did not know this is possible. This is so much better than Skype. Um, and and uh, and now, okay, there's like this is great. It's tailored for education, but does it have like all of the 300 features Zoom has. And so like, and so it's like, no, we, we focus on this specific use case, but you know, if your school is, you know, doing trainings on Zoom and, um, and you're required to use it maybe, um, and, and yeah, they do have more features because it's just a more matured product. Um, then, then we can we can get into some tricky conversations with faculty where they're like, okay, I love that you guys have built X Y Z that's specific to my needs as a higher educator instructor, higher education instructor. But I wish you had like you know random toy like uh, you know cool backgrounds or something like that or voice like modulation or things like that that Zoom does have that we don't. And so it's become a little bit more tricky, I think, as people have become more familiar with some of the generic tools. Um, to to really sort of like get that initial reaction of oh my god you're amazing. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense, and uh, and really, it's a matter of getting the right features to the right people, and I'm sure that's a big part of your messaging right now. Um, what would you say to back up a step is one of the biggest mistakes that professors have made uh, in this transition? I, I think a lot of the conversations I've seen administrators mostly, but also uh, professors to a lesser degree, um, engage in folk, like sort of doesn't make a distinction between asynchronous or, or synchronous online learning. And, and they're very different. Um, the kinds of people who will be successful in, uh, in, sort of, uh, in sort of an asynchronous online environment are, are very different than the ones who, who, who sort of need that synchronicity, who need to be there you know, ahead of, like with everybody else in real time communicating. So I'll, I'll tell the, I tell the story about my sister. I have a twin brother and an older sister. My older sister is the smartest out of, out of the three of us. You know, you put a book in front of her, she learns. It's literally that easy. And so my parents are like, why like put her in, in school? Like, you know, they're slowing her down. Let, let's yank her out of school and homeschool her so she can learn um, much, much more, you know, much, much faster. And, uh, and, and that worked really well for her. She went on to sort of graduate. She went back to high school, was a high school valedictorian, and uh, eventually became a Harvard dermatologist. Um, <laughs> didn't work as well for my brother and I. We were way less focused, way less mature, way less intrinsically motivated. We sort of need a lot of that, I think, external pressure and maybe, you know, the kid in the class who thinks he's smarter than you, so like you're competing with him, or, you know, maybe the girl you think is really attractive, you want to impress her by asking a smart question in class. Like all of that was really important to how we learn. Um, and, and much in the same way, I, I think uh, as, as classes moved online super quickly, a lot of people, a lot of faculty, a lot of administrators didn't appreciate how different the two modalities are. I think for the largest portion of, of students in America, you actually do need a lot of that social interaction. You do need synchronicity. You do need to have live lectures um, where students can raise their hand and ask questions and, and sort of go back and forth and sort of have a, a bit of Socratic engagement um, in real time. Uh, I don't think most people can, can really thrive, I think, and enjoy their learning in a, in a completely asynchronous environment where all the lectures are pre-recorded and, and, and things like that. So that's, I, I think, the biggest um, thing that we've tried to help folks understand is okay, these are actually very different kinds of learning. Absolutely. And and one last question on this topic, diving even deeper into the content. Um, I know a lot of professors tried to just take the 
four hours of lecture they had before and record those and deliver those or do those via Zoom. What what advice would you give to those professors as far as, you know, that's not going to be as engaging as if you're in person? It's just different. And there are some setbacks and some cons to that, but there are also some pros. Could you maybe give some advice to professors as they're trying to, you know, eat the elephant one bite at a time? How do they get started with kind of converting their content um, from that that live experience to online? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a big problem. I think that well, when you're in an online environment, you have to really get people's attention. You know, when I'm doing investor meetings, I, I generally try and avoid doing them at least pre-COVID um, online. I prefer to meet in person. It's much easier to keep people's attention. When you're in an online environment, oh, your phone rings, you know, or your phone buzzes, you're more tempted to look, right? Uh, no one knows that you're, you're cheekily texting beneath the table. Um, it, it's much easier to sort of be disengaged. And so what I would always do is I would always sort of like kind of shock them, say something a little bit risque, or you know, like sort of like you know, just throw out a really interesting fact that maybe is a non sequitur, just to make sure that people are listening, keep people engaged. I think faculty have to do similar things. Um, obviously, we with CampusWire have been evangelists for active learning for a long time. Um, one of the cool features in CampusWire is that you can poll students on the fly, and faculty have been doing this for you know for years using CampusWire in lectures. Um, so um, now I think bringing that online, okay. You know, in a poli-sci course, what do you think the probability is that Joe Biden picks X to be his running mate versus Y? Okay, you know, you poll the whole class in real time, you see the results, and then you talk about why. And it's sort of like those kinds of things constantly, I think, breaking up these lectures where you have every, you know, seven, eight, nine minutes, um, some back and forth where the student can actually participate um, is, is really key. That's great advice. I think another guest in the past had talked about uh, if it's anything that's just information intake, put that in the on-demand recorded videos, right? That foundational stuff, and then save the the interactive time, the the the, the time online live uh, for the debates, the questions, the interactive portions, and no, don't get into the habit of just uh, you know mass lecture live. Uh, even in the business world, we don't, you know, that's boring. <laughs> we don't like that. Um, use the same, you know, you know, principles in, in online education. Um, all right. We want to shift gears a little bit at this point um, to uh, bundling uh, of, of services. And this is kind of a bigger structural issue, but really the traditional university experience has been around this uh, bundled, um, you know, almost nickel and diming of the student body. Um, but Right now, education has uh, technology has a chance to kind of disrupt that. What are your thoughts on on that disruption, and and how is that going to play out? Right. So yeah, I think it's 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 really important now that as American families are, are sort of like questioning the value of a university degree that we have like a, a more structured way of figuring out what exactly are we paying for when we send our kids. Um, or our adults to, to American universities. And um, typically, you know, you'll see politicians, uh, sort of public intellectuals just say, oh, education. Um, actually, uh, what, what universities are selling, what colleges are selling is, is not just uh, education. It's, it's really, I think, a bundle of, of things as, um, as we've discussed in the past. And, um, and, and I think education is just one component of that bundle. And so you've got, uh, we call it internally at CampusWire, the four E's. And so you have environment, which is, you know, defined as curated physical and social experiences. Um, then you have education, which is 
pretty much access to subject matter as experts, right? Where are the best people in physics, the best people doing the most interesting work um, in, uh, in sort of biology? Okay, they're mostly at universities. That's where the highest concentration of them, of them exists. Um, we're giving you access to those people. Um, and then obviously employment, I think, you know, a big part of why people are willing to uh, sort of pay for these you know, sort of exorbitantly priced degrees is because, well, it's an investment. Um, in theory, you're supposed to get a return on that investment in, in getting a better job that pays better um, over time. Um, and then, of course, eminence. I think the, sort of that dimension is like the sort of prestige that um, that gets, you know, that comes with going to the right school. Um, and that can be localized in terms of walking around Atlanta growing up. You know, if you went to UGA, you're a king, obviously. Um, uh, but it could also be national or, or international in terms of if, if you're sort of, you know, walking around anywhere with a Harvard degree. And so like, but, but it's generally this sort of eminence, this prestige, this uh, improved social standing that can come with it um, as well. So that's the four pieces, the four E's, I think. Um, I think there's an opportunity for, for technology to help students access some of the components um, of the 40s that are critical towards living a better life, towards earning more, towards um, just sort of achieving the American dream um, without some of the more expensive um, and nice to have um, uh, sort of aspects of the, of, the, of the traditional university bundle. So, yeah, happy to get into that. Yeah, well, uh, just to dive a little deeper into that, you know, there's a big push towards uh, micro-learning credentials, trade schools, things like that, which would kind of fall more into the employment uh, bucket. Um, the, what do you see as the future of, of those trends? Are we going to see uh, higher numbers of students kind of uh, evolving that direction? And and if so, at what expense? I, I think that um, the education and employment components are, are the, two, the two sort of of the four that should be unbundled. Um, if you think about going to uh, a four-year school, a top state school, you know, Notre Dame, a Syracuse, uh, or not Notre Dame is not state, but you know, a Syracuse, a school with lots of sports, UGA, LSU, you're really getting a really great, amazing four-year country club experience for young people. That's what you're doing. There should be ways for people who just want to make sure that they can be high earners and have fulfilling careers um, to access the education that they need to be successful. And so we've already learned how to do some of this in theory, right? Community colleges and trade schools have already have existed for, for forever. Um, I, I think that, that there needs to be a sort of modernizing of, of what they do um, that can hopefully get rid of a lot of the stigma associated with, with community colleges and then also increase the quality of the instruction that happens there. If you look at sort of transfer rates into four-year schools from our American community colleges, they're abysmal. And so it's, it's a product that hasn't really been updated, but I do think that um, the community college and trade school route is sort of like, is the right path to figure out how to give people access to the American dream without maybe the sort of expensive components of the country club experience. We just need to figure out how to monetize, modernize um, and use technology to advance the community college and sort of trade school experiences. That's great. And then there's a lot of theories around what may or may not happen this year, next year, in the near future for a lot of universities just staying viable in this new normal. Um, and a lot of the folks that we've been talking with feel like there is a possibility that those very prestigious 
schools um, to speak to the eminents will probably be okay. They've got large endowments and, um, you know, they'll probably even expand in their online offerings because they can only have so many students on campus at Harvard, but an online experience could be expanded. Um, I know Purdue has a huge online uh, initiative that they've been doing pre-COVID that is really paying off for them right now. Uh, but then also on the bottom end, the community colleges um, are probably going to thrive in this environment because students aren't going to be able to afford, you know, the the kind of mid-tier. And so there's a lot of concern around these mid-tier schools that are either going to go out of business or be rolled up into bigger systems. Um, we're in Texas, so the University of Texas has quite a system. Um, you know, there are a lot of systems out there that could roll up some of these, um, you know, schools that are charging quite a bit and maybe not quite delivering that prestigious, uh, um, you know, value. And so, What's your take on on kind of where the chips may fall as far as those those kind of different tiers of schools? Yeah, well, I think well, let's talk about inputs first. I, I think obviously COVID accelerates a trend that's already existed, which is um, sort of an increase in sort of defaults. Uh, a lot of these schools going bankrupt. COVID also, uh, I think, is going to continue to accelerate you know, various trends around enrollment. I think that. Normally, you expect that when the economy does poorly, um, sort of enrollments go up. It's typically inversely related to, to sort of the economy, um, sort of university enrollment. That doesn't appear to be the case. I think that a lot of people uh, this time around, um, and let's see if the economy, it's really hard to know actually if the economy is doing well because the stock market's at all-time highs, but unemployment is too. Right. Um, doesn't so, seem sustainable. But, like, but yeah, I, I wonder how long this like, you know, sort of like aberration can last, but um. Generally speaking, I think that uh, over the next couple of years, we're not going to see that rush back to higher ed. It just doesn't feel like the most sensible thing to do. I, I, I think when I was a kid, you know, and you'd hear about your cousin or, you know, family friend who's kind of like looking for a career change, kind of confused what to do. Oh, I'll go get an MBA. I, I just, it's really difficult for me to imagine that being the mindset of, of, of your average um, person who might consider a career change given, you know, maybe they're laid off or something given given the pandemic and its economic fallout. So I, I think that we're, we're less likely to see that sort of sort of counter cyclical trend continue where enrollments will go up as the economy does poorly. And then a lot of ink has already been spilled about, okay, what does that mean for schools based on their tier? Yeah, probably uh, the Harvards of the world will be just fine. Um, there's so many sort of mechanisms available to them. Uh, that other schools won't have if, if they want to um, address sort of, I think 20% of the freshman class is deferring um, this year. That was published last week. Uh, well, they can just, in theory, let in all the kids who were waitlisted. And uh, there's lots of kids who will, you know, just to get their foot in the door, um, sort of deal with paying, you know, this enormous sum for an online term. Uh, but, but other schools don't have sort of those, those options available to them. And so I think those schools are really going to struggle. Now, struggle um, is often the sort of uh, the precursor to massive innovation. My hope and the one silver lining to this whole thing might be that not just innovation, uh, sort of innovation may not just come from, from the private sector with people like us, but also that some of these universities, these existing institutions, might go and say, hang on guys, we need a Hail Mary, right? We really need to try something completely new, throw out the old playbook, 
and figure out how to solve a lot of these problems that we've just been talking about solving for decades. And my hope would be that you know a Michael Crow Jr. or or maybe even a Michael Crow, you know, who's the president of ASU, would 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 say, okay, there is no reason not to take risks because we're already. Uh, like uh, running the risk of going out of business in the next two years because our financial model just was not designed to be pandemic resistant. And so that's the hope is that there is some amazing innovation that comes out um, from from uh, from the university side. There's definitely a ton, and I'm happy to talk about some of the stuff we're doing and some of the stuff my friends are doing and other ed tech founders are doing um, on, on the sort of private side. Absolutely. And you kind of beat me to my next question, which is great. Um, you know, it does seem like there's a more of a willingness, again, probably by necessity for universities and colleges to be open to partnerships with, you know, for profit businesses, for even some of the uh, corporations that they are trying to, uh, you know, get their students employed with. Um, and those corporations have been complaining for quite some time that, you know, some research says 75% of employers don't feel like the the recent graduates are have the skills necessary to really be successful on day one. Um, and so it does seem like that has really opened the door for a lot of uh, change and um, really rethinking, you know, the whole system in some ways. So, yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more about uh, what you and, and some of the other folks in your network are seeing as these new opportunities that, that wouldn't have existed six months ago. One interesting thing that everyone's learning is that there is a, a big difference between synchronous online education and pre-recorded lectures. I do think that people are starting to question. So it, the logic flows, if Harvard and all these schools, because very few schools reduced tuition, any meaningful percentage, um, are willing to charge the same amount for Zoom University, uh, right? Or online synchronous learning, um, because the fact the, the argument being the faculty are still showing up every, you know, every day or every Tuesday and Thursday to do their lecture. And it's just as much faculty time as, as you would have in an on-campus course. Um, then, then I think now people are like, okay, there's actually two kinds of online learning. And what you're getting when you take the asynchronous course and the faculty never knows your name, and it's kind of just like you know these stale discussion boards and these pre-recorded videos, that's actually not the same quality. And I think once, once we acknowledge that, there's a really interesting opportunity, granted the technology exists, to build an online university that is geared towards synchronous learning. Um, and so if, if you think about all of the online schools, University of Phoenix or Southern New Hampshire or Western Governors, they're all geared towards asynchronous learning. Um, and, and okay, maybe there's an enrollment cap, maybe there's just not you know, more than 5 million people who want an asynchronous learning experience, um, whether it's online or not. And, and so maybe there's a nice opportunity. And, and I think we're exploring this and we're talking to you know, various institutions and hopefully we'll have some stuff to announce in the near term on this. But I, I think there really is an interesting opportunity to build, you know, way better than Zoom software for our synchronous online learning and, and then actually build a whole university around that. And and I think the trade show industry is dealing with a similar issue, maybe on a smaller level in a lot of ways, um, is that just doing big, you know, kind of one-off recorded sessions is not replacing a big live trade show. And so, but building the infrastructure for um, what you're talking about, where you can kind of walk the campus halls synchronous, synchronously online um, and have those, you know, other factors, that environment, um, you know, that... Uh, uh, 
just access to, to your professors in a more convenient digital way, things like that, is a big undertaking. And um, it's probably a, a land grab right now to see who's the first uh, to, to kind of build that technology in a meaningful way. So that's that's really exciting. Exactly. There's right now three people, including us, that are, um, just for, in case your listeners are interested in, in sort of hearing who the players are, um, who've been thinking about this pre-COVID, who have um, a, a very sort of deeply um, thought through view on, on synchronicity and the importance of synchronicity in online courses, um, and have actually built technology that's not entirely horrible um, for enabling these experiences. And so you have the folks at Minerva KGI, they built their forum tool. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. I'm not, no. Yeah, so uh, they're interested. I, mean, I think there's a lot that, you know, that maybe, well, let's see how it works, you know, their whole model. But their idea was let's create Harvard, but synchronous and online. Um, and so they built all, they built Forge, um, which is their platform um, for synchronous learning. Um, and, and then there's us, I think that, uh, sort of, we've really built, uh, uh, sort of, uh, the really important software for synchronous learning. We focused on enabling other professors at, you know, more than 300 schools to use it in their courses and they love it and it's growing extremely quickly. Um, but I do think that there's an opportunity to partner with or, or somehow, uh, actually build a whole university around uh, that software. And then there's the Foundry College guys, and, and I think their tool is called Forge, which is very similar to Forum. Um, and so that's that's pretty much the three options that they have today in terms of who's built a tool that's essentially like Stack Overflow plus Canvas plus Zoom plus Slack and designed it with a certain degree of like elegance. I think those are sort of the, the only three, but I, I hope that many more will emerge over the next year or two, um, because I think that's actually the last piece before you can have a real um, sort of scalable online synchronous learning uh, sort of uh, sort of uh, institution. You you need really well designed software. Absolutely, and and that's what the market of these uh, new generation uh, demands is to have that uh, kind of uh, you know sleek software that is going to be seamless and, and easy to use. Um, well, let's finish up with one last question. Uh, I've uh, been reading up on you and uh, it, it seems like you're a bit of a serial entrepreneur. Uh, tell us about uh, you and your roommate developing a, a campus-based video chat service um, early on and uh, uh, what, what's the story there? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm 27, but uh, this is the second company and third major project I've, I've worked on, I started uh, Uniroulette when I was a student at Leeds University studying aerospace engineering, um, along with my roommate at Leeds, or my flatmate, um, and then my, uh, my twin brother who was doing economics at Oxford at the time. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it, 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 sort of like the idea was there was a tool called Chatroulette, um, which some Russian teenager invented that went viral. You'd go to the website, you'd press a button, and you'd be dropped into a video call with a random person on the internet. You had like a next button, a little roulette wheel would spin and then you'd be connected with someone else. And it was like really fun for like a week. And like our thesis, uh, I, I literally was just like with my drinking buddies one night and I was like, what if we limited this to people with .edu email addresses, much like um, I think sort of Facebook in the early days was limited to sort of students at Harvard and then university students and then expanded. Maybe we could create a curated, clean, 
exciting, interesting environment if, if we started with, you know, with, with university students, the idea being that they're really interested in meeting lots of people, dating, and they don't want to sort of like be that idiot. And so that part of the thesis was actually right. And so we launched it, uh, we built it, uh, Patrick and I built it um, over Easter holiday and then launched it. Um, it grew extremely quickly. It approached 100,000 users in our first month. Nothing, I think, in the social space had ever grown that quickly in the UK. And all these investors reached out. And, and so uh, I convinced Patrick and Tosh, my, my twin brother, to sort of, you know, sort of take a leave of absence from school. And we moved to London and started building it. And for like a million reasons I can get into, um, or, or maybe not, uh, it didn't actually last. I, our growth fell off a cliff, too. Um, in, in hindsight, and there was like so many plausible explanations for why at the time. First of all, it was written in Flash, which would make your computer explode if you used it for more than like 30 minutes. Um, and it just didn't work in lots of browsers and all these difficulties. Um, but uh, we did also didn't have mobile apps. But um, in hindsight, it was actually just a fad. Like it was exactly the kind of idea everyone wants to try exactly thrice. Like it's like, oh, I want to do it once, you know, twice. And then, okay, the third time it's like kind of, kind of old. Um, but um, eventually, we, we ended up pivoting the company into being a consulting firm for universities where, you know, various schools w- would reach out and say, hey, you know, what's this new thing called the App Store? We should probably get an app in there. Can you build something so students can um, sort of, uh, you know, check the dining hall menu or see what events are happening on campus or see which companies are coming to a career fair? And so we did we did that for a bit. And then sort of Patrick and Tosh kind of got bored and, and went went. And Tosh went back to uni, Patrick went and worked at one of our friends' companies, so Patrick being my flatmate. And then uh, I did that for a while, and then eventually uh, decided to start CampusWire. So, so, yeah, that's the, uh, I guess, serial story. The short story. All right, uh, one more question then. If you could get your crystal ball out for a minute and just tell us where do you think we will or could land uh, with all of this in let's say the next, not five or 10 years, that's too far out, but maybe in the next two to three years when hopefully this uh, COVID-19 subsides at some point in the next six to 12 months or so, um, and we're left with uh, the ability to, to meet on campus safely again, uh, but it'll be a different landscape. What is uh, your prediction on what that will look like? I think uh, three major things are gonna happen. The first is that really great software is going to emerge that enables really high quality online learning to exist. So obviously I think we're building it and I think there's others. I think that is going to enable two things. One, um, great schools that have already decoupled exclusivity um, with their brand value. Think schools like University of Michigan, UC Berkeley, UCLA, they already admit tens and tens of thousands of students every year, you know, 40, approaching 50,000, if they were to sort of up that to 70, approaching 80,000, that would not um, sort of diminish their brand at all. And I think what they're going to realize is, okay, we can actually take some of this technology that enables high quality online learning experiences, not just the asynchronous pre-recorded stuff, high quality synchronous online learning experiences, um, then they can actually nearly double enrollment um, without doubling their infrastructure investment costs. They don't have to build all of the new lecture halls. A lot of these students can you know, continue living off campus and maybe not even ever show up on campus, or maybe they'll build a few more dorms, but generally it's not gonna be a one-to-one um, sort of uh, each new additional student is gonna, is gonna ha- cost sort of the normal dollar amount that it costs currently to support. You'll be able to reduce uh, drastically um, how much it costs to support these online um, students. And so, 
Um, there's multiple ways they can do it. Maybe they make all classes hybrid, right? So um, Tuesdays and Thursdays, um, right? Tuesday, you're in person, Thursday, you're online, and then you can sort of like double your utilization of the existing lecture hall infrastructure. Um, or you could, you know, just offer half of the classes um, only online synchronous. But, but whatever the, the case is, their economics are going to change. They're going to be able to admit a lot more students because of this technology um, without, you know, increasing their costs linearly, which will allow them to keep tuition at its current rate or maybe even reduce tuition, but increase profitability, which is going to be very, very big. So I think that's I'm very optimistic on the you know, University of Maryland, University of Michigan, um, sort of UC Berkeley's that have decoupled uh, exclusivity from their brand value. And then the final, the final thing is I think that something is going to emerge um, community colleges have to be disrupted. I think that um, there's there's a much easier, better way to deliver high quality access to just the learning and just the education and employment components um, that the community colleges and trade schools currently offer using the internet. Um, and they already don't offer prestige. There's no prestige in going to a community college. They already don't offer you know, this like environment, like the buildings are like these sort of like 1940s brutalist style buildings and uh, you don't, you're not making friends and, you know, it's, it's generally, you come there, you knock out your gen ed and you transfer. And I think that can absolutely be done um, in a much more high quality way, cheaper uh, than the cost, the average cost of, of sort of community college, which is in states about, uh, about $4,000 a year. Um, uh, and so I think something like that's going to emerge and, and sort of disrupt the community college space. So those are my three, I, I think, uh, my three crystal ball events. Yeah, that's great insights and, and some new insights for the podcast, which is always welcome uh, in this time. So uh, that's all the time that we do have uh, for today. But uh, Tade, uh, founder and CEO of Campus Wire, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll see everybody next time. And don't forget to always keep learning.